Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The New Statesman. Almost five months on from the beginning of the conflict, Labour appears to have shifted its position, calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. This culminated in a chaotic debate in Parliament last night, with SNP and Tory MPs walking out, and this morning Lindsay Hoyle, Speaker of the House, is facing calls to resign. Finally, I should tell the House that in my opinion, the operation of Standing Order Number 31, which comes the way amendments to the Opposition Day motions are dealt with, reflects an outdated approach which restricts which restricts Be going and not be voting. <laughs> well, that's the first one to leave then. <laughs> if you want to, do it. Hello, I'm Anusha Kellyan, Britain editor at the New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me in the studio, I have Rachel Cunliffe, our associate political editor, and Freddie Hayward, our political correspondent. Yesterday, an opposition day motion in the House of Commons brought by the SNP to demand a ceasefire resulted in mayhem and a walkout from MPs. Prior to the SNP vote, which never actually took place, the Speaker of the House, Lindsay Hoyle, allowed a Labour amendment to be voted on first. And this led to accusations of Hoyle allowing Labour to hijack the debate. Usually with an opposition day debate, you'd have one amendment. And if the government puts down an amendment, that would be the one that would take precedence. So this is this is where he broke from convention. There had been a fraught build up to the vote anyway within the Labour leadership, which suffered a major rebellion over its stance on the same issue back in November, which uh, our listeners may remember. 10 uh, Labour frontbenchers quit over that and 46 other MPs um, defied Keir Starmer's position as well to back a parliamentary motion to call for an immediate ceasefire. And scores of Labour councillors have resigned over the issue in that time as well. So what's different this time round? Because Labour used to talk in quite caveated language, didn't it, about a humanitarian pause or a sustainable ceasefire. Yeah. Now it's using the language of an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. We should say that its um, its its uh, amendment actually passed in the House of Commons last night on this. Um, but has it really changed its official position, Freddie? You've been looking into this. I think much of it is semantics, important semantics, and it's important what tone and rhetoric that Labour uses and the difference between having a humanitarian pause, uh, sustainable ceasefire, and then having an immediate ceasefire, I don't think is is too different in part as well, because in Labour's motion, they had all of these conditions upon which they think, or it implied there were some conditions upon which a, a ceasefire would depend, such as uh, Israel being able to degrade the capabilities of Hamas. So it's 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 not necessarily clear how far it is a, a, a reversal of policy, but it is important because they're now using language uh, of which people have been calling for, for a long time, and it's much more similar similar to the position that the SNP hold. I think some people are like, why on earth is 
are we having two votes on this because there doesn't seem to be that much difference. I think there was some substantive difference between the SNP's position and Labour's position. The SNP, for instance, was saying uh, that they they blame the Israelis for collective punishment of the Palestinians. Labour, of course, are never going to go that far, in part because they've got this eye constantly on being in government and they don't want to jeopardise in any way the negotiations that they may, they may have to lead in six months or, or nine months or so. So I think that, you know, it was worth having two votes. But what what really happened is he started the day with Keir Starmer facing this potential rebellion, this huge rebellion within within the party. Some of the reported figures was, you know, it was around 100 MPs who might uh, rebel against the Labour whip. At the end of the day, you had chaos within the SNP, chaos in Parliament. Uh, the government had sort of been pushed pushed out. It didn't seem as if they were in control at all. And Labour's motion had been uh, nodded through the House of Commons and there was no rebellion. So I think Keir Starmer would be quite happy with what happened yesterday. Yeah. And you, you were there, weren't you? I mean, you, I think our listeners should all go and read your piece, which um, sums up the, the chaos uh, in the Commons last night. Um, what were Labour MPs saying to you about it? Uh, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of embarrassment, I think. Mm-hmm. I think... Um, people were sat there, they saw the sort of ferocity with which Stephen Flynn was addressing the deputy speaker. In part, the SNP was so angry because Lindsay Hoyle, the speaker, was not there. And it was he who had taken the decision to include the Labour amendment into the vote. Madam Deputy Speaker, if I have listened correctly to what has just been said, on SNP opposition day, <coughs> should the Labour Party's motion be carried then the SNP's vote will not be held. Secondly, if I have have read the clerk's letter to all members correctly, which was sent to to the Speaker, this was a consequence that he was warned of. So can you please advise me, where on earth is the Speaker of the House of Commons? How do we bring him to this house now to explain to the Scottish National Party why our views and our votes in this house are irrelevant to him? So they were absolutely furious. The government was furious. At one point, a a Tory MP stood up and asked for a, a vote for the House of Commons to sit in private which everyone was a bit shocked by, and I don't think many people realised what was going on for, for a long time. I spoke to one of the doorkeepers, and that would have meant that you know all of the, all of the press were ejected from the, the chamber, from the press gallery, which is just above mm-hmm. uh, the main chamber, and then you know the TV streams would have been switched off. So this normally only happens in wartime. I think it happened in uh, 2001 as well. So that was slightly bizarre. I didn't go through. I think some people were surprised by that. I'm not sure why it was why it was called. I think the key thing was that both the the Tories and the SNP were extremely angry with the Speaker for allowing what they saw as uh, Labour hijacking an SNP opposition day. And that's why we're seeing the backlash now. Yeah, and we'll come back on to Lindsay Hoyle's position. But Rachel, um, I mean, what does it say, you know, about our our politicians that it sort of descended into mayhem like this on an issue that is actually very important to a lot of people around the country? It's, it's slightly unedifying scenes, I think. It's completely unedifying. And I actually don't think any party or faction in this comes out particularly well, because what essentially happened was Westminster took a really serious 
complex, challenging foreign policy area and turned it into a row on the arcane technicalities of Westminster. We sort of made, Parliament made this about itself, which I don't think reflects very well on anyone. It is a serious issue, a very emotive issue, and what the UK Parliament, what stance it has on this conflict, it won't have any impact on what the Israeli government does, but it does send a message. There is a there is a signalling power in, in the UK Parliament. That, I think, has been somewhat lost, that power and that authority, by the fact that it descended into such chaos. And really, it was about the SNP trying to lay a trap for Keir Starmer and to put Labour MPs in the position of having to uh, either vote with their conscience and with their constituents or expose the divides within Labour. And it, that was a trap that the Conservatives were trying to collaborate with the SNP on, which is not a collaboration that you see very often in Westminster. And the chaos was the result of the Speaker giving Labour a fudge and a way out that neither the SNP nor the Tories, nor Labour, I think. I think Labour were actually, a lot of Labour MPs were quite surprised by that move, giving them a, a way out there. So I don't think it reflects very well on Parliament or the priorities of MPs. It also, though, speaks to a wider and I think more worrying, even more worrying issue, which is the risk to MPs of facing harassment, abuse and attacks. Um, I was in the chamber briefly while this debate was going on and actually there weren't that many MPs there. Mm. Um, There were some very passionate speeches happening, but it wasn't a packed chamber. Um, There weren't actually that many journalists there. And then I looked out the window and the crowds outside Westminster were vast and the, the noise and the music and the chanting and the placards and the queues to try and get in. And I felt there was a real... And is that pro-Palestinian protesters? Yes, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there was a real... And um, police presence as well. Like mm. the, the security on the parliamentary estate was really increased yesterday. You could feel it. You could It felt really edgy. There's a secret uh, entrance and exit from Parliament that uh, pass holders can use, which takes you to directly from the parliamentary estate into Westminster Station without having to go outside. And I had more than one person say that they were quite grateful for that yesterday because of the the kind of frenzied mood. Um, But Lindsay Hoyle had said that one of the reasons he made this decision was out of fears for MPs' safety because the strength of feeling on this issue is so dramatic and that there was a feeling that the SNP through trying to trap Labour in this kind of procedural net was increasing the risk to individual Labour Mm. MPs in their constituency. Now that, can we just take a step back from that? That is an sort of astonishing and really depressing factor to this uh, that this is kind of about MP safety and that maybe they, they don't feel able to vote in the way that they would want to because there are protesters camped outside of the constituency offices, in some cases camped outside their homes, following them, tracking their families. 
like regardless of what the issue is, that's a really worrying development in British politics. Yeah, I suppose we can roll our eyes at sort of all of the procedural games and complications in Parliament. But actually, the reason why there was such desperation to have a vote on on that particular Labour amendment was because the Labour MPs have been under the pressure that you described, Rachel. So, so it is there are very serious factors behind what may have looked in the end a bit like a farce. Um, I mean, just to defend the SNP here. Yeah. Procedures matter hugely. I mean, that's what governs Westminster and Parliament and Parliament Sovereign. It's not as if the SNP are just being childish by saying we want to be able to vote on our motion on SNP Opposition Day. It's their chance to drive the agenda, and that's exactly what they did. And if the Speaker deprives them of that, particularly if it's because of pressure from the Labour leadership, then that is in itself in a very important issue. And I also think there was significant differences between the SNP's position and Labour's position, and that's... That's why you couldn't just have them all coming together and agreeing that this should stop because it's bad. Um, so I don't think we should just dismiss it as a no, farce. No, and that was one of Hoyle's, that was his rationale, wasn't it? He wanted to give as many options as possible to MPs, particularly because you have such strong feelings around the country. You know, MPs' constituents feel really strongly about this issue and want to know where their representatives stand. Um, and let's just talk about his position, actually, because at the time of recording, and this may be different um, by the time our listeners are listening to this conversation, 50 MPs have called for, for Lindsay Hoyle to resign. I mean, how does this work, Freddie? Could could he be ousted? Uh, yeah, he could. I think essentially speakers are are elected for the term of a full parliament, so he would have to resign. That there is precedent for that. Michael Martin resigned in two thousand nine over pressure following the expenses scandal, with a much lower number of MPs calling for him to go. Part of the reason that happened. Uh, was because uh, all parties were calling for him to go, whereas Lindsay Hall sort of retaining the support of many Labour MPs at the moment. But I think the pressure's building dramatically. Um, just to be slightly cynical about it, I do think there will be an eye on who the well who each party wants mm. uh, in the chair after the na- next election. Uh, it does matter. Lindsay Hoyle has done quite a lot to restore the reputation of the chair of the House of Commons for being more impartial after it was tarnished under John Burko. And lots of MPs do respect him for that and are grateful for that. But I do think many of them feel as if yesterday went too far. And on what they might do and the sort of the, the anger against him is primarily coming from the SNP with yeah. a lot of Conservatives also very angry, but not the government as of yet. Uh, and actually the government has said, Downing Street has said, this is a matter for MPs. This is not a, a matter for the government to get involved in. We've also had Ben Wallace, who is quite widely respected as a former defence secretary, come out and say, speak in Lindsay Hoyle's defence uh, and point out that he does have a reputation up until this point for impartiality, for being very fair and uh, for really listening to the concerns of backbench MPs, which was a factor in this decision-making process. But the kind of message from him uh, and from sort of some other MPs have been, look, we're in an election year, tempers are very high, emotions are very high. We need somebody in that job who is experienced, who does have the 
respect and who does have the authority. Is there somebody else who you could parachute into that role in these sort of very febrile, I know we overuse that word, but these very febrile times, uh, who would be able to do that job as well? Now, obviously, if Lindsay Hoyle has completely lost the confidence of the House, he can't do that job either. But there, there was that messaging of sort of be careful with ousting him because we need to find an alternative that we can all work with. Mm. Uh, I also think, and I this is just purely my opinion, and Freddie, you may disagree with me, but the collaboration between the SNP and the Conservatives, I'm not sure how that plays with the wider public who perhaps might not have been following the ins and outs of exactly what happened with this story. And if the takeaway is the SNP collaborated with the Tories, I'm not sure how that will play in in Scotland. Although it was the government putting an amendment down that meant the SNP didn't get their vote, though. So I suppose it was yeah, collaboration with a sting in the tail in the yeah, end. Yeah, because the, the, the well, reason... pulling their amendment after yeah. putting it down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the, he wanted... Lindsay Hall wanted uh, MPs to be able to vote on all three versions of the language. And because... Labour's amendment was chosen, the Conservatives then withdrew theirs, which meant there wasn't a vote on either the Conservative one or the SNP one. The whole thing is a mess. After the break, we'll discuss how divisive this issue is for Labour. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Just going back to what I think is definitely the most important point is these threats against MPs. You speak to Labour MPs in particular and they are weary, they're teary often, they are genuinely scared... And, you know, I had one talk to me yesterday about how they were chased down the street by pro-Palestinian wow. uh, protesters uh, this this month. So and they do freely admit that their vote is being influenced uh, by these pro-Palestinian protesters. So you, we do have to draw this broader question and, and ask why it's not being more widely condemned. I wrote a piece last week in Morning Call before this all kicked off, just going through all the instances we've had this year. I mean, if you, you know, I, I wrote about Jonathan Gullis, he essentially said, I've got panic uh, buttons in my bedroom and I've, you know, had to shatterproof my, my glass. MPs just texting me saying, well, we all do. So, you know, that's just the, right. the, the new normal. So, you know, if... I mean, I don't think threats against MPs is new. Abuse isn't new. You know, we go back to the IRA or the suffragettes or whatever it might be. You know, the Brexit years. Exactly. So, but I think once it starts influencing votes, and you have MPs asking their their whips or the speaker's office to allow them just to put their name down next to the word ceasefire, so that they can say to the constituents, "I voted for this." Then you have a broader democratic issue where the sovereign legislators of the UK are not acting. Uh, on you know on their own uh, thoughts or processes, they're acting out of fear. Mm, yeah, and and actually, the the feeling around the country is really ramping up. I was in Rochdale at the beginning mm. of the week, where there's going to be this by-election, um, and you can see uh, the fact that. 
candidates like George Galloway, uh, less so Simon Danchuk, but he's sort of running for a populist party, Reform UK. People are trying to fill in the vacuum, um, which Labour have left with, by the fact that they've they've um, withdrawn support for their candidate, which we spoke about with Andrew Marr on a previous episode. But you, the feeling among the um, uh, among many of the voters in the constituency who I spoke to was really strong on this issue. And of course, you know, actually looking at what's happening in the region, the, the ground operation in Rafa, where half the half the population of Gaza have fled to and are sheltering is coming ever closer. Um, and so there's more and more emotion around the issue. Um, and this is a real problem, particularly for Labour, isn't it? Because you've got pro-Palestinian independent candidates now yeah. um, standing against certain MPs. Wes Streeting yeah. in Ilford is an example of a place where he's going to face that kind of opposition. Um, and you also have, you know, more crudely in electoral terms, Labour's support among British Muslims dropping. Mm. Um, so the latest polling, I think it's eight, from 86%, which it was in the 2019 election, to 60%. But Keir Starmer's personal ratings are particularly bad among uh, British Muslims. They're now at minus 11% compared to the average, which is yeah. kind of minus two, I think. Yeah, Labour insiders, they always downplay how uh, worried they are about the fall in the Muslim vote. Mm. But, you know, going back to how we solve this broader problem, it, it's it's a bit tiresome to constantly hear MPs and commentators basically go, well, we should just start being polite to one another as if that's going to solve the problem, <laughs> as if MPs shouting in the forum, which is the House of Commons, is the reason that they're receiving threats in their constituencies. Yeah, no, it's. I mean, I, it, it really is... Like on the ground, it, it felt very much like a first order issue, particularly in this constituency, which has, you know, a relatively big Muslim population, 30%, I think the last census showed. I think the, the most concerning thing that I've heard from Labour MPs is, you know, the reason why it's not been spoken about. One of them said to me that there's almost a, a collective wish that it isn't spoken about. Mm-hmm. They all know about it, but they won't speak about it in public, in part because the police have told them not to. But, you know, why is it that they don't want to speak about it? Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. If you're listening on Spotify, just scroll down on the episode page and type your reply. Or if you're watching on YouTube, you can leave a question in the comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Rachel Cunliffe and Freddie Hayward. We'll be back tomorrow to answer your questions on Labour's 28 billion and Tory wedge issues. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes.